Hi, I'm Jason Wachab, founder and CEO of MindBuddyGreen, the best-selling author of Wealth, and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review, comment, and share with your friends and family. And don't forget to visit us at MindBuddyGreen.com for your daily dose of wellness. Thanks, and enjoy the podcast. Dr. Michael Roizen is a four-time New York Times best-selling author and board-certified in anesthesiology and internal medicine. He's also the chief wellness officer and chair of the Wellness Institute of the Cleveland Clinic, as well as chief medical consultant to the Dr. Oz Show. Mike, welcome. It's great to be here, Jason. Thank you very much. So you wrote this great book, uh, great title. We're going to segue to your new book coming out, but, but another great book you wrote, love the title, age-proof? Well, we all want to be age-proof, meaning live longer without running out of money or breaking a hip or, if you will, the subtitle of that or forgetting where you put the money. (laughs) Um, And the, the goal is how do you do that easily? And Gene Chatsky and I, it was actually Gene's idea. We were, um, asked to do a pilot, which was called The Experts. Didn't go anyplace, but it was uh, a legal expert. It was a judge from Detroit. It was an insurance expert, a financial expert, Gene, an interior design expert, a fashion expert. We were nine of us, I think, uh, or seven of us, I can't remember. And what happened after the week of the pilot, and when they turned it down, Gene called me and said, I learned an awful lot, and the, the same strategies for financial well-being are what you taught me for medical well-being, health. Let's write a book together. And so we, uh, we did that, and we had a lot of fun doing it, obviously. We, our comments are in the margin, so uh, <laughs> the, uh, the editor captured our comments on each other's thoughts in the margin, so it was, it's a fun book. As, so as so how do we become age-proof? What are the tenets? What well, are the-, the, the key one for both, um, because it is the greatest factor in aging and the greatest factor in not being financially solvent are stress. That is... It's not avocados, it's not, it's, it's <laughs> stress. Yeah, stress is the greatest ager, and, and your stress in your financial life is the greatest problem, if you will, for your balancing your finances. So, and, and it's the only one where the strategies are different. In medical stress, in, in stressful situations... Um, there are 12 different techniques, meditation, guided imagery, deep breathing, etc. But doing those routinely gets you so you can do those when stressful situations occur. So it isn't you are, the situation isn't stressful, it's your reaction to it. In financial stress, it's the one thing that's different. You can't meditate that away. You actually have to start to deal with it. And the strategy for dealing with it is to start to pay down your highest interest um, credit cards, or your highest interest loans, or your highest interest problems. And maybe it is downsizing so you can do that savings. But um, the you want to assess both. So you assess your financial well-being. Um, what do you make? What do you owe? Um, what do you save? Um, and then the... Uh, you assess your, if sure. you will, your physical well-being, and the tape test is one of the best. Um, it is putting a tape around at your belly button and sucking in, and it should be less than half your height. So many of us are height challenged, if you will, because of in in that concept, um, meaning your waist should be half your height. Yes, um, and the it turns out. Um, when we teach people stress management, they lose weight, and everything else gets healthier too. So stress is is by far the greatest ager of all. And what's the most effective technique in your? In well, your... it's different for different people. So we we teach. We have a program that we started at the Cleveland Clinic called Stress Free Now. There's a free app on the, um, if you will, in the app stores of both Android and and iPhone. 
um, that goes through some of those techniques, but it, whatever technique you learn, you've got to practice it. So whether it is meditation or deep breathing or guided imagery or progressive muscle relaxation, we go through all 12 over six weeks and go through practices of them week by week. And what we have found, um, we, we combine it with our e-coaching. So what we have found is 84% of the people will complete at least four of the sessions and then learn to practice one of those. So it's not that they quit before the end, they've actually found a technique that works for them and then they keep practicing it. So 84% will pick up one of the, the early, if you will, eight techniques. Kind of a big so, deal that the Cleveland Clinic, you know, a very well-respected institution, really uh, supports what some people would consider like alternative holistic techniques like meditation and breath work. Toby Cosgrove, our former CEO, did one of the first studies showing that if you meditate or do guided imagery before surgery, you actually shorten your length of stay, you decrease your the amount of pain medication you need by more than 50%. Wow. And so that was way back in the 90s. Yeah. So um, We've been progressive with Mark Hyman and functional medicine there and the work you're doing. It's, it's for, for a very established, respected institution. To me, it's like really encouraging. Well, the other thing that, that's really... I'm, I'm going to go off on a, on a sidetrack so you can bring me back if you don't <laughs> want me to go this way. But by just getting... You know, if in the United States, we call it six plus two normals. In the U.S., um, we only have 2.7% of adults end up with six plus two normals, normal blood pressure, normal LDL cholesterol, normal fasting blood sugar, hemoglobin A1C, normal waist for height, less than obese. Normal meaning there's some leeway when you start to age, um, so it relates to age proof. Um, no cotinine, tobacco end products in your urine, and stress management program completed. If you look at those six, in the U.S., 2.7% have even four of those six in the normal range, which is why we're so expensive. At age, not we, the Cleveland Clinic, we American medicine, because we have a lot of chronic disease. 84% now of all medical care costs are spent on chronic disease management or managing chronic disease. So um, if you get there, you radically reduce your costs. Um, at age 47, which was our average population, we have 101,000 employees and dependents, they had a, we were at 6% normal, which is actually the national average for age 47. Um, we're now at 43.6%, and we've saved $665 million in the last nine years for 101,000 people compared to the typical hospital. Um, that is the average hospital in America, and we will save 150 or to 200 million this year compared to that. So getting wow. to six plus two normals, which is what you can do with lifestyle medicine, what you can do with alternative therapies, if you want to consider stress management alternative, I consider it mainstream. But if you, if you, oh, well, um, so do I. But still, a lot of people hear it, and you know, oh, right. you know. They think you're under a pyramid or something, right? right? right. But in fact, it is um, mainstream, if you will, in my mind. So those six normals, six plus two normals, you get there, you radically change the cost structure of medicine, and you radically change your ability to avoid disability and avoid chronic disease. So one of the things that, that you like which I like as I sip my black coffee and you sip your black, your coffee is coffee. Is and I was like, coffee. I got to talk to this guy. He's a big fan of coffee. And I always love, I always love doctors who support my uh, intake of uh, black coffee. So why do you well, like coffee? Well, you know, um, as you know, Mark and I have a debate on this, but I'm right because the data's on our side. So you and oh, I you are and right. Oh, you and Mark, I'm in debate on this? Oh, yeah. We, <laughs> we debate uh, coconut oil and, and, and black coffee all the time, and I'm right on both. <laughs> so let's but, hear your side. But anyway, on coffee, um, the data are pretty clear. Um, if you are a fast metabolizer, 82 to 88 percent of Americans, we don't have enough data to say whether it's 82 or 88 percent, but we do know it's, it's someplace over 80 percent, are fast metabolizers. If you have a cup of coffee and in, in a one-hour period and you don't get headaches, you don't get... 
um, gastric upset, you don't get anxiety, and you don't get abnormal heartbeats, you're a fast metabolizer. So you don't even need a genetic test. There is a genetic test for it, but you don't need it. If you're a fast metabolizer, um, six or more cups a day decrease your risk of Parkinson's disease by more than 50%. Six? Well, six. I love it. I'm never getting Parkinson's. I'm just oh. all set. You decrease your risk of Alzheimer's disease by over 40%. So maybe all dementias, um, but at least those we have quantitation on. You decrease your risk of nine cancers, including prostate and breast. And you decrease your risk of liver disease, liver cancer, and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease uh, substantially. So whether it's ovarian cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer, brain cancer, etc., this is a good thing for so you. So six cups, 48 ounces. Well, the rest of them it is done on two or more cups a day. So okay. you start to get benefit with two or more cups. Now, just this past month, there was data from a Canadian study looking at what is it in coffee. And it turns out it is some of the black polyphenols. Some of the actual polyphenols give you half the benefit. Caffeine gives you about half the benefit. But in the black polyphenols, it turns out when you roast the coffee beans, you create these antioxidants or black polyphenols uh, that color the coffee, but also give you um, benefit in harvesting one of the proteins involved in inflammation. So you decrease inflammation throughout your body. You essentially handcuff it, you bind with it, and you pee it out. So um, I'm sold. I love coffee, so, so I'm not. I'm not going to even challenge this one. I'm just going to say. Well, right. not only that is the, <laughs> the the data is right. So um, yeah. Now, for some people, it does increase their anxiety or their stress sure. level. Those are slow metabolizers usually, and those are the people who don't get a benefit from caffeine. So you mentioned you disagree. So you don't like coconut oil. I'm assuming. Yeah. So coconut oil. The the data is pretty clear in old studies. You know, I'm an old guy and I was at NIH, National Institute of Health, in the period of 71, before gene models of mice and rats for disease was created. So you had to create animal models. The way we created the animal model for dementia and Alzheimer's disease was you would create a small infection in one of their paws and then you'd give them coconut oil. That causes the inflammatory mediators to get across the brain and cause dementia in the animal models. It's a very well-established animal model for dementia. And the problem with coconut oil isn't the oil. It is that it causes uh, the blood-brain barrier to be permeable to inflammatory things. We have a barrier between the rest of our body and our brain, which keeps infections and other inflammatory things away from our brain cells. Well, coconut oil breaks that down, at least in the animal models. We don't, we didn't so do this yeah. with humans, obviously. Right. We, we, but that's what the experiment is going on with the marketing of coconut oil. Now we're going to have that experiment, and we'll find out whether these people develop dementia earlier uh, or not in large-scale epidemiologic studies. Right. So still, it's a tough one because I've, I've met people both sides of coconut oil. It seems like, well, Jerry's not, it's, we still don't know enough. We don't know enough in humans. We, it's clear in animals mm, right. that you shouldn't have it. What so, if, and we're pretty close to animals. So if you will, meaning our, our genotype and our rest of our blood brain barrier function and our functioning of our brain is pretty close in the way it's designed to animals. Where are you, where are you on the rest of fats? Um, so the data on fats isn't fat. It is what comes along with the fat. So there are some good fats. If yeah, you exactly, know. So the healthy fats. Av avocado, yep. you know, the omega, the, what I call the ad omegas. Olive oil, avocado. Yeah, so the omega-3s, which is avocado and walnuts, um, flaxseed. That's why I take in, the, in that vitamin pack from... Yep. Persona Nutrition, that's why I take omega-3 and DHA. Those are healthy. And sometimes I don't get enough. Um, and the other one is odd omega, is omega-9, which is olive oil. So it's an odd omega. 
and those are somehow healthy for us. We know that from both epidemiologic and intervention studies that we've done in animals, and some in humans, that they decrease inflammation, they decrease heart disease, DHA decrease the omega-3 that's, that I take in, those, in that pill pack, decreases retinal disease, decreases brain disease. DHA is a good thing. You want to be a fathead because sure. it, it is the fat that coats your nerves that helps them function better. Omega-5, my test question on anyone, what's, what fat has omega-5 in it? Yeah, uh, you tell me. Well, there's only one It's it that I know of. It's pomegranate oil. So it's an huh. omega-5. So that's part of the odd omegas. And in some one study, that's all we have because not many people study pomegranate oil, but one study shows it decreases breast cancer, but that's the only data we have. So in any case, the odd omegas are healthy fats. Um, the saturated fats, we knew a long time that they were harmful, but we didn't know why. And it isn't the fat that's harmful. So if you look way back in a Real Age book, which is the first of the books that I had in, from 1998, 1999, we knew it was bad, but we said it wasn't because of the cholesterol, and it isn't. But we didn't know why. In 2008, we learned why from a guy named Stan Hazen and his group, and it's now been repeated not only at the Cleveland Clinic where it started, but Mayo Clinic has repeated it, Cedars of Sinai has repeated it a number of places in Europe, the carnitine, lecithin, and choline that come with red meat and egg yolks change and cheese change the bacteria inside your gut to produce an inflammatory substance called trimethylamine. The bacteria that love those things, carnitine, lecithin, and choline, produce trimethylamine as their waste product, their poop. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it's small enough that we absorb it, goes to our liver, immediately goes to trimethylamine oxide, and that's a more potent cause of inflammation in your body and of heart disease, stroke, and memory loss than is a cholesterol, an LDL of 260. So the average person has this as one of their major risk factors in America because we eat a lot of red meat and egg yolks. Well, cholesterol, um, too, people say the number is not as important. It's, it's, it's about particle size. It's about LP, all these other, mar- like, it's sort of... Well, it turns out it is, it, it, there is a, a association and a ability by lowering LDL cholesterol and lowering inflammation with the statins uh, or with diet or with a whole bunch of other things of decreasing your risk of coronary disease. But even more potent than that is avoiding red meat and processed red meat and egg yolks. Um, and that's, if you will, the, it's not just the Cleveland Clinic studies from Hazen, but it's from a number of people, and that's because we change the bacteria inside our gut when we eat those things. So you're not a fan and, of meat or eggs? Correct. It isn't that the fat itself is bad. It's what is associated right. with it. And unfortunately, you know, when you say, well, can you get rid of it by having grain-fed, you know, or range-fed uh, yeah, grass-fed, yeah. grass-fed or range-fed beef? And the answer is no, because it's the protein. It's the carnitine. It's what makes it red. So what, if you were, so usually I'll go through like a list, you know, meat, no meat, sounds like you're not. Well, I'll tell you, I'm a, I'm a, I am a, vegan except for, if you will, the um, fish, if you will, and, and fish oils, which you could get from algae, but I get from salmon and ocean trout. And what so, about, were you on chicken or you just... So chicken is kind of a neutral food yep. and is fine in uh, what I would call, you know, normal eating. It doesn't, it doesn't have a lot of carnitine or less than a choline sure. with it, and it doesn't have a lot of anything else that is bad and it has a lot of healthy things so if you're having problems sleeping chicken is a great choice because it has the precursors for those things that help you sleep well and what about i'm assuming dairy is a no yeah dairy well it's very interesting we don't have great enough data on dairy what we have is that the whey looks like it's healthy the whey pro so there are two major proteins in dairy whey and casein Mm -hmm. And it looks like the casein 
is a bad actor in a way is a good actor. Right. Um, for us as adults, I'm not talking about kids. Um, I don't. I'm I'm an adult doctor, and I don't know enough about kids. But the data on much of this in your childhood seems like it doesn't matter. Meaning, whatever if you survive childhood um, by age 18, then it starts to matter. But in any case, the um, the casein in the China study um, that was uh, sure. uh, done in the late 70s and early 80s, casein was the protein that was associated with the development of cancer in that group and repeated in some studies um, that were sponsored by NIH in animal models, but never done in humans. Now we're 40 years later, and it still hasn't been done in humans. So we don't know whether that casein was associated with hormone therapy in the milk they produced right. and what was done with it that was different. But so we really don't know. Whey, on the other hand, seems to be a healthy in building muscle cells and in repairing cells. So I think the 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 data on dairy is still out. So you mentioned whey, something that's uber popular right now is collagen. You know, collagen protein, collagen powders, collagen creamers. What's your take on collagen? Well, it gets broken down. It's an expensive form of the precursors of collagen. So collagen will get broken down. If you take it orally, it gets broken down in its component parts. It doesn't get absorbed as collagen. It gets absorbed as the amino acids. So taking, getting food with the amino acids, um, or if you will, taking it that way is a much better way of actually getting it in your body, sure. only better because it's much cheaper. None of the data, I mean, the, the data on uh, collagen injected is different right. than collagen you take orally. But from an oral standpoint, there's an, it's a, it tends to be a very expensive form of getting the precursor amino acids, which then go to form. So you want vitamin C and you want zinc because those are needed to form uh, if, if you will, collagen in your body, and you want the precursor amino acids um, that collagen breaks down to, so you can get it from chicken or fish or whey, in fact. Um, so it, right. it, it's a virtually any protein, the protein in walnuts gives it to you, too. So I think collagen, if you will, the powders or the, the creams are what we would call a wallet biopsy. The company is taking your wallet away from you um, rather than uh, you having a less expensive form of that. Well, it's true that some people don't get enough. Like I've heard collagen starts to disappear at a certain age. Some people don't get enough. Oh, it definitely does. Yeah. No, 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 that, that's absolutely true. But you can get it in much less expensive right. forms. Understood. That's my, my only point. So it's fine to take. I mean, if it's, if it's inexpensive enough and you want to take it, that's fine. It's not going to do you damage, and it will help you because it gets broken down in its component parts, and then you reassemble it in your body. So what are your most underrated vitamins, minerals, you know, CBD, hemp, collagen. I could go on the list of like what's hot, what people take, you know, omega-3s, CoQ10. Like what, what's, I know it's hard to generalize, but if you had to generalize, what's something that's underrated that people should be taking, but they're not? Um, I think K2, vitamin K2 for building bone. One of the major disabilities is we get frail. It's we lose skeleton. So in making yourself age-proof, you want to prevent breaking a hip. And people know calcium and vitamin D, but K2 is important too. And probably the most important thing is jumping. So jumping isn't something to take, it's something to do. But you did jumping jacks, et cetera. So jumping is one of the most, what I would call, underrated things. I because love it. it's the only thing that builds, that we know, the only exercise that consistently adds strength or um, osteo it adds mass to your bones. And so it's 40 jumps a day is the ideal. 40 jumps a day. 40 jumps on a hard surface, not on, a, not on something that gives, but on a oh, hard you're surface. You're taking away all the fun now. Why? Trampolines. Oh, yeah, but you got to do it on a hard surface. Okay. Jumping on a trampoline may be fun, but it doesn't build bone. Okay. Okay, so you, you got to do it on a, you know, challenge your, your kids or grandkids to 
can I do or or your fellow, you know, I did this with Mehmet. Um, how many jump ropes could he do on the show? Um, how was Dr. Oz? How, how, how many jump ropes could he do? They had to go to a commercial. I was killing him so badly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in any case, um, the, uh, the point is that, that jumping on a hard surface adds both bone to your spine bones and your hip bones consistently. And the other thing is it somehow shocks your um, discs to get them to be more youthful and more spongy and bigger. And as you know, as we as we get older, we get shorter. Sure. And mm. um, not only that, but we bend over more. So you, it's it's that process that helps you and not look and be frail. Interesting. So back to food. Uh, I only have a couple more on my list. Sugar. I'm assuming you hate sugar, like everyone. Everyone seems to yeah, agree now, on that. Yeah. Now that's correct. But but processed sugar. Yeah, we need some sugar in our life for our brain and our testes and ovaries to function and eyes to function. But that's why we get insulin resistant as the day goes on to provide sugar when our 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 liver will see will make sugar for us, what we call gluconeogenesis. It redoes sugar from fat and everything else and protein, and that provides us with enough sugar. So simple sugars, added syrup, simple carbohydrates should be probably eliminated because those actually feed um, cancers and they change proteins. So the problem with sugar is it changes the way your proteins function. So... For example, hemoglobin in A1C is just hemoglobin with a sugar at the A1C position. And what that does is it reduces the functioning of the hemoglobin. One of the functions of the hemoglobin is to deliver oxygen to your tissues. It, the hemoglobin won't offload the oxygen as well if you've got a C, if it's hemoglobin A1C, if you've got a sugar in the A1C position. Um, so sugar, I consider... Bad for our proteins, yeah. bad for growing cancers. Where are you on gluten? Um, so there are people who have problems with gluten. So gluten, if you will, allergy is probably 1 in 250 or something like that. Gluten intolerance, though, may be 2 to 10%. It's much more common than we think. Um, that is, than the medical profession has thought. But we don't know where it is. So we know that for some people it causes inflammation in your mm-hmm. gut um, due to either an allergy or due to a intolerance to it, a reaction. But we don't really know. I just feel better when I don't have it. Yeah, no, I don't no, have no. Intolerance, but yeah. <sighs> well, no, but what you may have is intolerance. So, um, but a lot of people will feel better, and so that's the experiment you've done on yourself, Jason, right? Well, so Frank, you know. Dr. Frank Lipman has a great line. Like, I've never met anyone who's told me they felt worse after removing gluten. Ah, that's isn't that interesting? Maybe so, people like feel cranky. Yeah, or they, they feel and they, and they, they're upset. And they, but I've never met pe- someone who told me I felt worse. There they were are people having a who crave it. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, sure. um, I don't know the. I don't know the. I don't think we know where it will fall out in the long term. But clearly, for whether it is two percent or ten percent, those people feel a lot better when and they remove. And then you hear stories anecdotally of people who can't have it here, and they go to Europe, and it's fine. They eat all, you know, the, the gluten here in the U.S. is different because of the process, what we've done, the milling, and all that stuff. Um, so getting back, it's to actually it. amazing that that whole grains cost more than. Uh, simple white bread, isn't it? Yeah, it's to insane. me, it's, it's 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 a reverse process. Why should manufacturing the the food um, and taking away half of the product, which they then sell, um, be in fact a cheaper process than uh, just giving me the whole grain? So, getting back to the things you really like, what's your what are your top three veggies, and then what are your top three fruits to eat? Um, so I will eat any veggie, but if you if you will, what do I like uh, best? It's probably um, spinach. Um, I mean, this is going to sound ridiculous, right? But I do love I love spinach. I love broccoli, mm-hmm. and then um, I I guess I would say I don't know sweet potatoes or beets. Um, and it's actually the beet greens that I that I really love. So, um, but any of any of those. Um, fruits, it is virtually, um, you know, I'm, I love uh, gala apples, so 
apples, um, I guess uh, grapes, um, especially in wine, um, and then tomatoes. Wow. Usually people come straight out with the berries. I usually hear blackberry, blueberry, raspberry. So I, so I, I love eat, it. You're shaking it up. I, I, I eat a lot of berries, but, I, <laughs> but it's not, it's, it, it, I suppose my, it's not my favorite. So, so wine, wine okay. Yeah, so the, the, moderation, the, the data, yeah, the data on alcohol is um, that if it impedes immune function and seems to facilitate uh, cardiovascular health, blood vessel health. And so the balance is one to two drinks a night for men, half to one for women. Now there's some, uh, we use it a little differently in working with patients. That is, if you've got a high risk of heart disease in your family, you go and um, say, okay, the wine every day is a good thing. If you have a high risk of cancer, especially cancers early, then you say it isn't as good a thing. Right. But um, that's how we would, would use that. So it sounds like if I had to sum up your philosophy on food, it's along the lines of Michael Pollan. You know, it's very similar to his. The only mostly addition, plants. Yeah, the only addition is right. My my fish choice. You know, I will have you know my usual breakfast is a salmon burger on weekdays and egg white veggie omelet on weekends. So you mentioned breakfast. So the two things that are, uh, I'd say, trendy but people seem to have results with uh, intermittent fasting and ketosis. So what do you think of those two? So. What we know on both of those is they're probably healthy, especially for s- certain segments of the population. And let me go, our, in, in the What to Eat When, we analyze that. So that book comes out December 31st. Um, but intermittent fasting, there's a preponderance of data that it really is improving your body functions, getting you to optimal health. And just going from 12 to 14 hours. That is eating over a 12 hour period and shortening that to eating over a 10 hour period. What we call eating when the sun is up is probably the optimal way. Our body wants us to do the rest from an evolutionary standpoint. Our body, we ate at night because we needed to store fat. We don't need to do that anymore. But it was a perfect way of getting us to survive because we would become more insulin resistant as the day went on. And in the evening, you would store fat so you could survive if there was a famine or if you didn't successfully harvest something the next day. The other reason it was good is we didn't have refrigerators in the old day. So food rotted overnight and you'd get sick by eating it the next day. Now we know that's the wrong, that's it's a great way for us to survive to age 30. It's a lousy way for us to survive past 30. So we want to eat more in the morning. So eat while the sun is up, eat more early, less later, don't eat after the so, sun goes down. So what's the minimum there there are lots of different views on intermittent fasting in terms of duration between last meal and first meal the next day so what how do you define it you're, what is the minimum is it 12 you're, hours 14 you're 16? smiling i'm smiling at you because we don't have those data i mean in other words they're tough to do those randomized studies you fast for 12 hours and you fast for 14 you fast for 16 and let's compare it in a large well, how do you group. define what's the minimum so, in your mind so what we know is that going from 12 to 14 makes a difference in the biomarkers of aging. We don't know whether going from 14 to 16 does. So 14 is... Right now, 14 is is better than 12 hours, but we don't know whether 16 is better than 14. And 14 doesn't sound that bad. If you think about it, 14 is dinner at 7.30, and then your next meal is 9.30. Yeah, so that's a very typical thing for the way I eat. Um, which is try and finish by 6.30. Now, that's tough because of my working schedule, but I try and finish by 6.30 and only have a salad at dinner. And then um, breakfast is around 9 a.m. So that's essentially what I try and do. And breakfast is a bigger meal, breakfast and lunch. Are. So and you... try and finish by 2 p.m. is The data is pretty is darn good from Spanish studies and from our own studies at the Brigham 
where if you eat more before 2 p.m. and less after 2 p.m., you do you are much healthier from a standpoint and, of the biomarkers and something of else a lot of people have different opinions on i'm curious your take is defining what breaking the fast is so some people will say well do you break the fast with coffee yes no do you break the fast if you put something in your coffee whether you put ghee or butter or almond milk and how, how do you define yeah we, breaking the fast well or does it matter um, I don't know that it matters, but we think that ketosis is a key component of it. That's why 14 hours of uh, fasting is better than 12 hours, if you will, um, because 14 hours you're much more likely to get ketotic than 12 hours. So if you define it, if that is really the key, getting some ketosis and some attempt at gluconeogenesis by your liver, then you'd say anything that increases your blood sugar would be bad. All food increases your blood sugar. So even if it's nuts, you're increasing your even blood sugar. Even if you drop olive oil in your coffee or coconut oil or ghee or... Yeah, because that it, rev, it, it changes the, the what the liver does, if you will. Got it. So the, the approach would be um, that black coffee or water is not breaking a fast. You can have water, you can have black coffee. Now, there are other reasons to avoid fluid during sleep, which I can get to. But in fact, um, the I would say that putting sugar in the coffee or putting uh, ghee in the coffee is not the same as black coffee. I do what, the how ghee. Do you, I, I do the ghee. Oh, you do? Yeah. Okay. I so, do a little ghee every morning. Yeah. So what I would but tell then you, I don't eat till later. Yeah. What I, I what I would tell you to do is is just go black in the morning, and then you can have the ghee on your first cup later on. Okay. I'll I'll let you know how how it goes. Good. So ketosis. I know data is strong or out with with cancer, and just curious, like what your take? Yeah. So the the, the cancers are uh, fed by sugar. Right. So. <laughs> Ketosis is kind of the opposite process to having sugar available. So we think that's good. And there's a fair bit of what we call anecdotal or association data that that's healthy. The other place that it's really healthy is in decreasing inflammation. And so it's gotten popular for dementias, which are really all the dementias are really inflammation of the brain with the inflammatory substances eating neurons or decreasing the connections of the axons and dendrites in the neurons. So um, Walter Longo's studies are yeah. the most prominent in this area where by getting ketosis for, uh, especially on the fourth and fifth day of his five day a month process, you seem to be able to reverse or at least stabilize dementia. We don't have a large number of outcome studies on that. We have some. We have studies looking at uh, telomeres and stem cell telomeres that show them elongating. We have markers of of the biomarkers of aging all getting better over that five day period when you get ketosis. And there's some real good scientific rationale, meaning looking at the activation of the RAS system and looking at the activation of the CERT genes. So there's some good basic science backing the clinical observations. We need more data on that before I'd say to everyone go ketotic. Sure. Um, but I think the data between the ketosis data and the intermittent fasting, I would say it's pretty clear that we should um, be without food for at least 14 hours a day. I love it. So we've talked about food. We've talked about stress, sleep. Well, sleep is probably the most underrated um, and it's the most underappreciated. So, uh, you know, when I was, when as a physician, we learned, I was in the... Learned how not to sleep. Yeah, I was, well, how, <laughs> and how to sleep instantly when you had a chance because you didn't have much chance. We were on 36 off 12, on 36 Oof. off 12. It was just, brutal, just take a moment and just picture it, on for 36 off 12. It was a brutal period. 36 I mean, hours straight. Yeah, it was brutal in, the, in those days. I mean, my, my wife is a physician also trained at Hopkins Pediatrics, where in their 
on 36, even if they had a chance to sleep, they would have senior rounds at 12 midnight and at 2 a.m. on the two different Hopkins services. I mean, think about that. I mean, they were, it was brutal. And so we learned that if there were, but we, we sacrificed anything, if you will, we sacrificed sleep for anything else. Very bad uh, behavior. So I think we in America often sacrifice, you know, I'm going to stream, I'm going to watch the, the sixth season of X show. Yeah. Um, and so I'm going to stream that and I'm not going to go, to, I'm going to watch that on Netflix instead of sleeping. Well, it's, it's a totally... It's not it, good. Right. It, it is, sleep is really important. And the duration of sleep, what we found out is really important. So I'm talking about dementia because most of us think the aging research is progressing fast enough that we think we're going to be able to get an embryonic reboot to the rest of the body, meaning you're going to make your, your rest of your body very much younger. You don't want to do that to the brain because you want to keep your experiences and your knowledge. So how do you do that? Well, you've got to keep your brain functioning as a younger brain, if you will, at all times. So preventing dementia is absolutely key. So those things in sleep when you get rid of your waste products, you get rid of the brain's poop. Every cell so produces waste products. what's the minimum product. for sleep? Well, wait a second. So you get rid of the waste products the longer you sleep. So when you sleep seven and a half hours, it's not like seven and a half over five and a half or, or 20 or 30% better. It's like 90% better because your brain shrinks as you sleep as long as you don't hydrate during the night. And as it shrinks a little bit, as you get rid of water, it opens up pathways called glial lymphatics that get rid of waste. So seven and a half is like 70 or 80% better than five and a half hours. So what that's, about like nine? So we know that- going, Are diminished returns at a yeah, certain point? Yeah, we know that going <laughs> over nine is associated with um, if you stay in bed for nine or more, it's associated with depression. Right. Now, we don't know what, whether that's the nine is just is causing it or whether it's, right. a, it's a symptom. But in any case, so the ideal is seven to eight hours or six and a half to eight hours is, is really what is looked at as the ideal from a health standpoint, from an optimal health and for preventing dementia. So you mentioned dementia, brain health. In your opinion, what's the best thing we can do? Um, well, there, there are 10 things we know that change your risk of dementia. So one of which we've talked about, the most important of which is managing stress. So routinely managing stress, stress is the greatest cause of shrinkage of our hippocampus. So only one organ in the body where size matters, the hippocampus. So I told you the DHA, like I take yep, in that persona nutrition packet, is important for your size of your brain, your hippocampus, and for connections. So there's reasonable data, but stress sh prunes your neurons, if you will, prunes the connections. The second thing is physical activity, and we've learned- We're jumping. And, and we've learned that some intense physical activity, so you can get it really with jump rope. Very quickly, you will find out how aerobic jump rope is, and doing intense exercise releases a protein from your muscle. We don't know why, we know the protein now, that gets across your blood-brain barrier and stimulates your brain to release brain neurotrophic factor, which is like miracle growth for your hippocampus. So one is um, managing stress, two is do some intense physical activity if you can, the third, every day. The third is do speed of processing games. This is a very interesting thing. So memory games improve memory, but don't overall prevent dementia. Doing crossword puzzles and new things, new um, like learning a new language, improve that area of your brain, but don't prevent dementia. Only thing we know that prevents dementia is speed of processing games. So it's competing with someone on, can I do a faster game? Can I beat them at... Um, Game of Thrones, et cetera, by <laughs> acting faster. That actually is good for dementia. In the older people, we do, we call it uh, Brain HQ, did randomized studies on this. So you do either 
um, double decision or um, what's it called? It is a, a, a picture game, and I'm blanking on the name of it. Um, but it's I like flicker. Yeah. It's like face flicker. Yeah. Um, and it's um, so those those actually increase the size of your um, hippocampus, but more importantly, in 10-year studies, going at people who are 73, going to 83, 18 hours of practice over the 10 years, decreased dementia risk by 48%. Huge. And in the studies looking at um, the acetylcholine content, which is the key content of memory cells, it increased that and increased acetylcholine release in PET scans. So this is really good data, speed of processing games. Fourth on the list was the DHA, I yep. told you. Fifth um, is avoiding uh, the what we call the the five uh, saturated or the five S foods. Yep. Um, simple sugars, simple added syrup, simple carbohydrates, foods with saturated fat. Again, not because of saturated fat, but because of the carnitine, lecithin, choline, and trans fats. They're going to be eliminated by the government force. So those are the first five of the and the most important of the five uh, of the ten. So your new book, I love the title, What to Eat When, kind of says what it is. I don't want to go into every, I want people to, to pick up the book, but I think one pain point for a lot of people is the afternoon. And, and, and I should tell you, we have a lot of fun things in there. So what to eat if you're going on a first date, what to eat before an interview, what to eat to build muscle. Well, what are the, what to so eat. Let, let's, get, let's do first date. Muscle and then the slump, the, the two or three, two or three p.m. slump. Let's stick with so. Those. So we have those in the book, um, if you will. So we call them just a little bit differently. So I'm going to show you uh, where they are. What to eat at the stadium is another one, um, but uh, what to eat when you're being tested. Um, what to eat when you have a job interview. Well, what's that one, job interview? So at a job interview, you want to make sure to eat about 90 minutes before your interview, and you want a small portion of all three things, that is protein, carbohydrate, and fat, and you don't want to eat new foods, so you don't want to right. have, have gastric <laughs> Don't try distress. something new right before. Right. And then um, if you're used to coffee, have, you know, have coffee right beforehand to spur you up. Part of it is the job interview, is it a one interview thing? That's what you do for one. And then if it's an all day set of interviews, some of them are all day, um, we, there's a little different strategy for that. What about, what about first date? Um, so I'm going to look up first date because okay. you haven't uh, been on a first date in a while. I haven't been on a first date. And I didn't. I didn't pay <laughs> pay a lot of it. So here's the. Um, so um, this is a this is a test we have in here. So true or false? A good order would include a salad and appetizer with light dressing and sprinkled with fresh pepper on your first date. No. No. Why not? I go straight. Uh, for, so for me, the way I would operate a first date, the the, the order would be wine. Wine. So I, the, I would right, avoid the food right, for, so, for as long as well, possible on the first date and go to the alcohol. You're talking to Jason, you know. So the 15, reason 10, the 15 re years ago, different Jason. The salad is fine. <laughs> I operated a little differently. The salad is fine, but the pepper is the problem. It might get in your teeth. Oh, okay. Okay. How should you ask for your marinara sauce? As it comes on the dish, none on it's the a trick side. Trick question. No marinara sauce. It's on the side. Okay. Okay. Um, which of the following ingredients would be most desirable to order? Garlic, dark chocolate, pesto, red wine. Definitely not garlic, pesto. It's dark chocolate. Well, I get dark, I get over pesto, huh? Isn't which which food has been shown to increase libido? Oysters. Oysters, asparagus, chocolate, avocados. Oysters. None of the above have been shown. Really? So there. oysters is a mistake. Yeah. That's just not. It's a it's a uh, if you will uh, what we call BS bad science. Wow. So what was the answer? None. Uh, none. So is there anything to um, on libido? There are things. To, so best things for, for libido actually is ketosis and the omega-3 fats. Oh, wow. Um, Keto for libido. I have not seen that one online. Or maybe I, I just haven't been Googling. <laughs> so what about the slump? I think a lot of people have the afternoon slump. Um, correct. And so the, the, the things to eat for it are not what people normally grab, right? They grab something with sugar in it, right. which gives you a spike, but then, then you gives crash. you a quick crash. So it is um, 
coffee, and if you want something, it's nuts or dark chocolate. What are your favorite nuts? Um, so rank them top three. So my favorite, you know, my favorite are walnuts because they're the only nut with appreciable amounts of omega three in them. Right. And so then the other nuts are just what do I enjoy? And it's it's cashews or pecans or almonds and uh, where are you on peanuts? Controversial. Well, well, peanuts are really not a nut. Obviously, they're a legume. Yep. Um, but all of the studies that are epidemiologic that show a benefit for nuts included peanuts as a nut. In the Iowa Women's Health Study, for example, eating an ounce of nuts a day. Um, it was associated with extending their life and their period free of disability by about four years. Huge benefit from an ounce of nuts a day. And about 50% of the nuts eaten in that were peanuts. Hmm. So You're making a lot of peanut butter fans happy. So, But it should be without the emulsifiers, right? So oh, yeah. um, the, the, the data on peanuts are, are pretty good as being a, being a healthy food. Okay, I'll take it. And I think cashews are actually making a little bit of a comeback right now, especially uh, cashew butter. Um, yeah, I I don't follow the trends enough. Well, like um, to almond know. butter is huge, but I think there have been sourcing issues with almond butter. Uh. So I think it's actually driven people to explore different different nut yeah, butters. You, you know, I don't know what you use for butter, but I use a, I use avocado. Avocado so, butter. Well, not avocado butter. I just spread the avocado. You know, I use it as butter. I do. I I, I use avocado. I'll I'll do almond butter. I'll do cashew butter. I'll mm. do peanut butter if I'm feeling adventurous. So, something I I'm curious. You know, what's something that you think people are doing that they think is healthy but is not? I think the grass-fed beef. Because the carnitine, you're just not the, the carnitine's everywhere. It it's the matter. carnitine lesser than in choline, right. right? And that's also true with egg yolks. The other um, thing I think is, um, you know, a lot of the uh, the egg yolks clear, are definitely controversial. You're the first non-vegan no, I've heard who said yolks. They're not even controversial. The data is overwhelmingly bad. You can fraudulently make it good. But the data in the literature... That's strong language. You can fraudulently make it good. Well, that's people are selling you know, books, if you will, by saying eggs are good, eggs are back. They aren't back. There is clear data that more than one egg yolk a week changes the bacteria inside your gut to produce inflammation in you. So the, data's, the data is clear. The data also shows that that correlates from the Mayo Clinic for the Cleveland Clinic, Cedars of Sinai, that correlates with a high risk of heart disease, stroke, and memory loss, and even cancer. So the cancer data is less clear, less solid, meaning it isn't in all six studies. Most of the studies were done with cardiovascular disease and memory loss. So it's pretty clear on that. Um, so why do you think eggs are making such a comeback? Because they're, they're great, if you will, if they didn't have this effect. If we had something you could take with the egg that decreased the production of TMAO inside you, it would be a great food. It's a wonderful food from a standpoint of it's got a great set of proteins and it's got, and you can get it with, if you will, DHA. Those, you know, you could you could probably use it in place of taking a multivitamin a day, if you will, because right. it's so balanced. Unfortunately, it causes a lot of inflammation. So what's and the, so? Well, I'll put eggs to the side for now. It's a, egg, <laughs> not egg whites. Egg whites are great. So it's just egg yolks. So I'll, I'm still. I'm going to put eggs to the side. Um, what is the worst thing for inflammation? Well, it's get, it's getting an infection in your body. So if you look at it, we measure inflammation by your highly specific C-reactive protein. Zero to three is considered normal, but we have zero to one is what we go to with most most of our patients. You might, if you have a low-grade infection, a vaginal infection or a infection of your teeth or gums, you might have a level of four to eight. If you had the flu, it's 150. So acute infections, acute viral infections are some of the most 
acute, if you will, and they cause your plaques to rupture, which causes heart attack and stroke, etc. So um, those are bad. If you're saying what food is the worst, it's probably processed red meat because um, it causes, a, it's consistent at causing your bacteria to change in the gut and it causes the substances with it worsen the inflammation. Uh, so understood on, you know, we should get most of our nutrients by eating veggies and whole foods and I think everyone's on board with that. But I think some people are challenged by just getting everything they, they need. You know, they do their labs and we're short, short here and, and so forth. So I'm curious, like, for someone who does take a lot of uh, supplements and vitamins daily, uh, what, are, what do you take? What are your, some of your so, favorite? So I have, I, there's a, what, what I call Fab 8. So, um, and that's because the data are pretty substantial. So a multivitamin, half in the morning and half in the evening. Why do I divide it? Because you'll pee out the water-soluble components in under 16 hours, you see your urine change color. So to keep a steady level. Now, remember in 2012, the articles appeared in the Annals of Internal Medicine and a number of other things, you're wasting your money. That was the 10-year data, and that was true. But the 20-year data show a 25% reduction in heart disease and a 17 or 18% reduction in cancers by doing by taking a multivitamin. Those are huge benefits. The other thing is every woman in the potentially pregnant age should probably take a prenatal. multivitamin. Well, or prenatal. Well, that prenatal is like a... A prenatal yeah. multivitamin is, is, is perfect for that because taking it three months before pregnancy, both men and women, decrease autism spectrum disorder or disease by 40%, decrease... Um, all congenital defects by 80% decrease cancer in the child up to age six by 65%. So prenatal is, is really, and, and the reason you take it is because 50% of pregnancies are unplanned. So that's the, the reason you take it. In that age group, in, in the older age group, it's to prevent cancer and heart disease. Second one is vitamin D, and we measure vitamin D levels and then try and get to 50 to 80 um, you don't get side effects till you're above 110, and that's mainly increased calcium absorption and kidney stones. Um, but the vitamin D we think is beneficial for a number of things, including fighting infections. Last vital study last week came out, 25% reduction in uh, cancer deaths from taking vitamin D as a supplement, randomized controlled study. Uh, the third one is omega-3 DHA. Again, the vital study had that in there, a 25% uh, reduction in heart disease. That isn't as good data as, in fact, uh, it wasn't heart disease in general, it was heart attacks. It wasn't as good uh, data as, in fact, the data on preventing brain dysfunction and eye dysfunction from taking DHA. So that's the third one, if you will. Calcium and magnesium, because you rarely get enough calcium or magnesium in your diet, and you don't want just calcium. If you get just calcium, you get constipation, so you want the, right. the two together, if you will. Magnesium is um, great for sleep, too. It is. Um, and it, cramps. Exactly. So you're. I mean, I'm talking to a pro, Jason. I mean, I should be. I should ask you what what you're doing. But anyway, um, the uh, the fifth one is um, over the age of fifty, a statin looks like it decreases dementia, decreases heart disease, may even decrease cancer. So you want a torvastatin or rosuvastatin if you're fifty and above. Um, and if you're doing that, you want CoQ10 because the statins decrease CoQ10 levels by about 50%. So the amount of CoQ10 is 200 milligrams a day. The Obviously, statin you want to prevent with lifestyle. Well, you'd like, you'd right. love to do that, right? Yeah. Um, and then um, a probiotic. We don't know which probiotic, so I take more than one. I take um, Culturel and Digestive Advantage, two different companies, and they have different uh, different strains, different, different strains, yeah. but they both get across the acid in your stomach. So one of the major problems with taking just fermented food or with most probiotics is they weren't designed to get across the stomach acid. So you take four billion live cultures and you get two hundred thousand. These you take four billion live cultures and you get 
800,000 to a billion live cultures. So those are basically the, the what I call the oh. Fab Eight. Now there are four more that, that don't have, if you will, a lot of risk, but don't have randomized studies in humans showing greater benefit than risk yet. They're animal studies. So, and we're getting into the aging areas as well, um, where stuff like NADR, the precursor to uh, nicotinamide. Oh, NAD plus and NAD right. R, yeah. yeah. NAD, that's interesting. Um, so we don't have the studies in humans, but they do regenerate mitochondrial energy production in animals and in some small human studies. So people are thinking about those very low risk. Yeah, the NAD plus and NR is really interesting, and a lot of people are very encouraged by that. Right. So those are some of the... It's one of the two things the that, I, as I understand it, the FDA, the other one is metformin. The, the FDA is allowing to be studied for aging, with aging biomarkers as the, the groundswell for approval or not approval of those as drugs. I love it. So last question. Uh, a lot of people out there are you know, young and healthy and, and thinking about, okay, how do I live my best life? How do I uh, you know, live long, stay young, all those good things we, we all want? What's one thing that everyone should do? Learn to manage stress and learn a technique for them that works to manage stress and then practice it daily. I love it. Mike, thanks so much. Thank you, Jason. Thanks, guys.